Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Mallcast. Good evening. Good evening. Ireland have named their squad for the Autumn Internationals and it's incredibly similar to the one that went over to New Zealand and won. Maybe the main uh, change, the the one who who breaks through is from the Emerging Ireland Tour is Calvin Nash, named in the first team squad and not in the A-list. And also, Kieran Frawley reclassified as an out-half, not a centre this time. Yeah, it's it's in a lot of ways the the team that came back from New Zealand... um, there's no Harry Byrne, there's no Hendo, Frawley, as you say, has moved. Um, and is Larimer? Injured. Larimer's not in the 10. He's not in the 12, yeah, so he's he's injured. He's I thought broken he was foot. Oh, I didn't know I didn't know it was classified as that. Um, and Earls is injured, so I... I don't even know if he would have changed anybody but for injury. But, like, it's... Look, injury's your best selector in, in some instances. McCluskey played against the Mary, didn't he? Yeah. In the second match. Uh, and with Bundy being out, uh, I can... It, it, it's understandable how he's selected. I wouldn't be surprised if Hume got called up into the squad. Um, if he... You know, played well, stroke, survived the match against uh, the New Zealand A team. Uh, he obviously was picked on the tour and then got injured in the first match, so so didn't get an opportunity to make an impact. And, you know, a lot of it, his his credentials were talked up going over there, that he'd challenged the, the top three. I, I personally think he still would have been fourth of four, but, you know, maybe we'll find out more uh, in, the new, in the A game. Any thoughts on it? No, no, I think it's you covered everything there. Um, and then about the A selection, because it's not quite a full team, which gives the impression that he's going to pick from the remainder of the squad and then only consider certain players for the A. Um, interesting to note the presence of three players who played really well for Munster, for, for Emerging Ireland and then returned to Munster, Cro- uh, Crowley, Crowley uh, Tom Hearn and Roman Salanoa. And also the return of Marty Moore to the Irish international fold, who's been... I mean, he had a head injury as well, didn't he, during the summer? In the last season, yeah. Uh, but it doesn't, didn't, didn't really seem like he was in consideration. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but it's interesting to see that he's being considered for, uh, you know, an, he's play, playing international rugby again. Well, we're Marty's fan club here. I certainly am. Young Maradzi, old Maradzi now. Um, but it seemed that, if not quite John Cooney's status, he was—he was—he didn't figure in in Farrell's plans. Like he, despite being probably the best tight head scrummager in Ireland, but seeing the emerging Ireland team being blitzed by the cheetahs and you know struggling at different stages against the other South African provincial teams, doubtless brought into relief 
that no scrum, no win. And because Killer's back in that emerging team as well, or not, he's not, it's, sorry, it's not an emerging team. Now, now it's, it's much more of an A team, but the two old guys that are in are Killer and Marty. Marty completely deserves to be in uh, in the international mix. Um, Salo actually, I thought played played quite well over in um, in South Africa with with emerging Ireland, and I thought that he played he's played well with Munster this season. I, you know, he's such a he hardly played for two seasons uh, in Munster. You're going, is this guy going anywhere? But this season he started off really well. He's extremely powerful. That that just gets said about him all the time. He's got big legs. He's mm. really strong. Uh, he has a big fend, um, and it's it's good to see him um, being able to showcase uh, the, the sort of physical abilities that he has because it looked like he was going nowhere for a while. For, for two seasons, he just like he just seemed to have a series of niggling injuries which kept him off the pitch. And sometimes those niggling injuries just get like they turn into just excuses. Is he even injured, or is he just not getting selected? Oh, he's carrying an injury. Well, fucking what injury? You know? Uh, but he's obviously come out the other side of that. There's been a change in management in in Munster, and he's responded to that. It seems pretty clear that he's a different player under Rantry than he was under Van Gran. And it's uh I think it's I think it's he's he's too late developing to be any sort of um to be any sort of uh, real possibility for an Irish Rugby World Cup squad, but he's still relatively young. He's not super young. I think he's 25, 26, but there's there's still good rugby in him, and it's good to see a guy who's made a huge, huge move, you know, moving from Hawaii to to Dublin and now to, to Limerick. It's good to see that paying off for him. Um, but the big winner is, is Marty Moore, who should have been involved uh, more often uh, for Ireland over the last few years, as should Cooney. Like my feeling about Cooney is, they're looking for the replacement really for JGP when they they're looking at uh, Keelan Blade, but they also need to be looking for a replacement for Conor Murray as the experienced sort of finisher. Uh, and Cooney should be in. Cooney should clearly be involved in Ireland. I have no idea what the issue is. I. Just take up the point about the Salonone and Irish... A 2023 Irish World Cup squad is probably too late, but for a 2027 World Cup squad... Yeah, could be in the mix. He could well be in the mix. His, his age profile is right and, you know, injuries and... But, like, props get better as Yeah, he'd be 29, 30 then, yeah, which is perfect. He'd be in his peak prop in years. Yeah. Um, and Farrell signed an extension, so, you know, who's... Obviously, this World Cup is forefront in his mind like is 98% of it but somewhere in the background you've got to be thinking of what comes after that now Farrell likes athletes as well you know yeah. he's, he's more likely to go like you know with a, with a guy who's got you know pace off the mark and a huge fend than somebody who's a brilliant technical scrummager and has always struggled maintaining you know a decent body mass index and I guess that um it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem so out of place now. So like had had Salano, like Salano wasn't in the mix for the tour to New Zealand during the summertime, uh, but we said that Marty was. But mm-hmm. the emerging Ireland tour has profited both of them now. So that when that when those additional twelve players are named, 
and Marty and Salanoa are among them, it doesn't come as a surprise. Like you look at it and you go, well, Marty has to play because no scrum, no win. Or not has to play, but like he, you can see the rationale of him being involved. Mm-hmm. And then Salanoa has definitely played himself on. Whereas, like, he wasn't even in the Munster team before. No, he was not near it. Before, like, at, at the beginning of the season. So, you talk about the logic of the emerging, or sort of you, everyone, you know, one generally talks about the logic of the emerging Ireland tour and, you know, the benefits and these guys have opportunity to play ru- club rugby. What if they don't? Like, what if the guy, if the situation that they're in is that I'm going to pick whoever, whatever position, whoever you're talking about ahead of you, and Farrell goes, as you say, well, I like athletes. I'm, I'm going to pick guys who are capable of playing international rugby because you're picking guys who aren't. Um, but now it just doesn't seem that outlandish. He's been in a green jersey. He's done a few things. And like a number of the players, he's come back with confidence. And like it was... Uh, I suppose the, the Monster game is the one that... that Evidence is the most contrast with what went before because mm. obviously we were playing well before. Leinster seem to miss players so often and they come back in so often that like it's it's you know no it's big deal. hard. And plus, like the match against Connacht was like played in squally driving rain. Yeah, but the the guys who came back into the Munster squad were reinvigorated going into a a a low a, a low morale camp and. Uh, Actually, the Emerging Ireland Tour was really good for Munster. Really good for them. Things. Really good for really good for the individual players who went over for Munster and really good for the players who didn't even go. A huge win-win. Now, this is based on the back of one performance. I, I, like For the game against the Dragons and the game against Connacht, it wasn't, it wasn't great for them. But no. that's the past. Um, and it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how... How that like uh, the Bulls were the Bulls were most of them were much better certainly against the Bulls the Bulls were very disappointing looked once again like they'd never played in the rain and um, and just just like it's amazing I look back I was looking at that game and I was going jeez I can't believe Leinster lost to these at the end of last year um, but you still have to beat them and Munster bonus pointed them. Um, the person who the player who most impressed me actually out of that entire performance was Edwin Adogbo, who I think is an amazing find. A guy who I think I think is pretty much capable of playing international rugby now, like next month. I'm so impressed by a guy who can play uh, play second row at 19 years old against a South African team, and just like. Absolutely ready for it, able for it. Um, really, in pretty much all aspects, good in the loose, good in terms of the uh, his ability over the ball, and fit, uh, able to keep going, gets over the gain line quite a lot, good tackler, great great habits, really impressive player, and just an absolute unit, a huge dude. He really impressed me. I was when Hearn came on. Now, Hearn replaced the dog, but so we didn't get to see the two of them together. But you're thinking, they're going, Jesus, that's Munster's second row for the next 12 years. They're so young. And they the complement each other so well. So well. You're we looking, were saying that earlier. Yeah. You've got the tractor and then you've got the giraffe. Yeah. You know, such, and those are very well known compliments a tractor and a giraffe. Um, 
but they, they like Adogbo, as I say, 19 now, 20 next month or 20 in December or something like that. Tom Hearn's only 22. Like in 12 years' time, in three World Cups' time, Tom Hearn will only be 34. The age, I think Paulie was older than that playing in Rugby World Cup uh, in in um, the quarterfinal in Wales, 2015. It was goose before the quarterfinal. Sorry, the quarterfinal. Oh, yeah, the game that I saw against yeah. France, yeah. You know, so you're going like, that is, that's such a good pairing. Yeah. And, you know, there's many a slip, twist, cup and lip. But it's not, some things are just like, yeah, there's no reason why that shouldn't be a pairing for a long time. It's funny. Is that the first game he started this season? Mm-hmm. He started against, did he not start against the Dragons? Did he oh, come on. did he? I thought he, he, I thought he did. thought he did. It's funny how the uh, Snyman thing has opened the door because they have two established locks in uh, Incline and uh, and Tyke Byrne, who are both internationals. And Klein's kind of not, doesn't really seem like he's going to get back into the international no, he team. Won't. And uh, so he's a good man to like have around a club. And then Byrne is sometimes not even a second row. So there's they have two international players and they have two upcoming talents uh, to fill in those two positions. It's a, It seems to be now, uh, it's quite a good, healthy lineup to have. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And they've Coombs bouncing people out of the way at oh, eight. Such a monster. Like, I thought that was, I really enjoyed watching the replays of it. Yeah. When you see him bouncing, big, bra-eating, high-veld-dwelling, yeah. proper, muttony, South African types over. And yeah. Like, even against them, He's he's bouncing those guys yeah. off. So and just driving them backwards. Like they know what's coming. He's you know, he's three and a half meters out and they know what's coming and he still gets over the line. Like such an impressive And you look at like you can play Tyke Byrne at six, you can play Amani at seven, or you can play Hodnett at seven, or you could Kendallin. play Kendlin and you've got Jack O'Donoghue, you know, still bouncing around there. So I have to say the player I, I enjoyed watching Joey Carberry and I'd forgotten how much of a pleasure it was to watch Joey when he played for Leinster, just like his skill set and his balance and his timing because he really looked like he was enjoying himself. And I hadn't seen him like that for, Jesus, like four years. It seems like four years. Mm. Um, I I, I thought he got on the ball a huge amount. I remember looking at Munster with Van Graan coaching and like the out-half got the ball once in every seven passes mm. off off a phase. Like, I'm not saying, like, a seven pass, the ball going around the place, but, like, when, when the ball was at the bottom of the rook, sure, they'd have, like, props and back rows taking the ball in the out-half channel and not looking for a pass out the back, like, just charging onto it, and you're there going. Sure, like, that's no system to be playing out-half in. Um, whereas he seemed to be on the ball frequently, anyway, um, and directing things. And, and enjoying himself and whether it was the the presence of, of Crowley as a spur of competition or as a, not an enhancement but an enabler but um, an encouragement there was there was football yeah there was catalyst there was a football on the pitch it it was that was great to see really good to see mm, Crowley was better than him now anyway yeah, but you know, like how how long is there? How long is there left before the World Cup? Like you'd you'd rather 
Like, if they're going to go with Joey, you'd rather Joey have been playing well and... Yeah, absolutely. You know, having, yeah. you know sort of having the known downside that he has. And... Because, geez, like, when he plays well, he's... He's a pleasure to watch. Uh, go back to it. Yeah, I, I didn't think he was that good. Like, I see the same things I always see with Joey. He just runs sideways into his centre space and then passes to the centre. You know, all the time. So he ran a little bit straighter this time. But yeah, no. but he's been... Like, some of his recent play has been atrocious. Or maybe it's that he ran... He just still ran sideways, but he was definitely taking the ball flatter and bringing it closer to the line before passing it to the centre whose space he's run into. Yeah. It's certain, or, like, passing it behind the centre. It seemed like Munster were... Still dropping a lot of ball, but much much less than though in, yeah, in previous yeah, games. Yeah, yeah, much, much le- less. But much less, yeah, certainly much less than they had been doing. Um, it made me think during the game, and I was bringing this question on you, so feel free to take some time to think about it. Are all the province's attacks in some way modelled after Ireland's attack now? That's a good question because nobody up until this, up until the the good performance against. Um, against the Bulls, it was impossible to make any sense of what Munster were trying to do because they were just dropping the ball all the time or throwing the ball into touch. Like, it was, people, you know, you would, oh, my, this is what Mike Prendergast is trying to do. And you're going, really? How can you tell that? Because all I see is a load of fucking mistakes. You know, but from that game, there was just a huge change within the space of a week from how they played against Connacht to how they played... Uh, now, a lot of that is swapping out Healy and putting in Carberry. Um, but it was also like far fewer dropped balls. And thus you can begin to see a shape emerge because like after two phases, the ball isn't going dead. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I suppose... Um, I think there's so much nuance in in what different teams do in attack that unless you're recording the match and then re-watching it and making notes, I wouldn't pick it up. Just watching the game. I think that definitely that out-the-back shape, um, you know, has has become... Yeah, all, all the teams use that. And there's varying degrees of tightness and, uh, like, action or... Precision as well. Precision to, to what, you know, to, to how it's executed. But, yeah, like, I... But Connacht are playing with three... Do, like... Connacht are playing with three out-halves in their team at the moment, partly due to injury and partly due to suspension. But they've got... Uh, Carty, and then they've got Hawkshaw, and they've got Fitzgerald at fullback. So 10, 12, and 15 are all, have all played out half. Uh, so they have a particular way of attacking. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's not like they're all playing out half and seamlessly slipping in and out of, out of half, half, out and back of out half. So, but there, so there's always going to be wrinkles. Between how, but yeah, I think I think broadly speaking, people are playing a sort of similar Irish rugby style. Yeah, the, like I I guess that for for the Ireland team that played during the summertime, the wings were big contributors, and James Lowe is a big contributor to the Irish team. But so is Mike Hansen. So like James Lowe's kicking game is very important to Ireland, um, and the fact that he can be brought in as a first receiver who could possibly distribute, but who also brings an entirely different running threat than Johnny Sexton does. Um, 
or an entirely different running threat to you know to, to most people in that he's, he's not exceptionally quick but he's very very strong he's very good balance he's got a good step and um he's quite confident to get his hands through the through a tackle and offload it so he he brings that in where his Hansen can go in at first receiver and oftentimes is used as oftentimes is used as a first receiver um from the wings so from from an Ireland shape I think I think the wings are big contributors to that Ireland attacking shape I like I think looking at Leinster versus Connacht like Rob Russell just and Turner like Turner's the center to me they just didn't carry any threat um like John Porch had Russell in his pocket all night and I think to myself that had James Lowe been playing on that left wing or even Jimmy like and Jimmy's not scintillatingly quick Leinster would have got more bang for their book in, in whatever dominance they have but I just felt that every time the ball got over to Russell he, he Porch had him covered like there, there wasn't Leinster couldn't get around the back of Connacht they couldn't stretch Connacht um so you you need that. It's not enough to be like slow and standing on the end of a way, like on the end of a move. Yeah, he's or not, even it's not slow, or even like being fast. No, it's being able to beat one on one. So you've you got a weapon. Able, yeah, well, yeah. if you're fast like Robert Balakun, and Balakun can shift, yeah, but like that that would be a big impact. So we talked about like you know, would Leinster sign Aaron Sexton? You, I would have liked to have seen Aaron Sexton play for Leinster against Connacht. Um, just to see the difference that it would have made. And maybe John Ports would have had him in his pocket because maybe he's too raw. Maybe he doesn't have the football in him. But like he has that pace that for the space that was created, he would have you feel that he would have got in behind. So I I do think those two guys and I think the involvement of wingers is a big deal for Farrell. Like because Conway was really involved when he played. Mm. Very, very busy, very active. Not a similar player to Lowe or to um, or to Mac Hansen, but they sign of a well coached team. They had Conway doing things that he was very good at. They, they, you know, there was a game plan constructed around him playing in the wing. So like they, they haven't kicked in a lot of contestables. They use him kicking the ball through and chasing. Yeah, uh, he's very fit. He's 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 competitive and combative, and Ireland play towards that. So. I I think they're the sort of the hallmarks of of an Irish attack, which I don't think are replicated in in the provinces. That's a good point, Conway. Just to add to your point, Conway, Conway always plays well for Farrell. Like from the first Six Nations that Farrell was coaching, Conway was playing well for him. Um, and he'll be missed. He'll be missed. Like it's it's funny. Like we have a load of wings, and like they're fucking all injured. You know, Conway's injured, Earl's injured, Lowe's injured. Um. Larmer. Larmer's injured. Stockdale is, is still injured. Stockdale hasn't played. Now, he'll be, hopefully he'll be back. This was a different ankle than the ankle he missed the whole last season with. But um, I think you made it, yeah, it was a very good point. And, and uh, like, I look at backs and you go, you're either a playmaker or you're a weapon, as simple as that, just as, as they would in, in the NRL. Like, you look back at the Maroons team and they had, like, Lockyer or Thurston or... And then you have a guy who's like Greg Inglis, Darius Boyd. You know, and so you have playmakers on one side and weapons. And if you're neither, you're not in the team. Now, you can be lucky and have a guy who does both, like Billy Slater. 
Those players are few and far between. And I'm not saying that a playmaker can't have a great break, but like you have to be one. It's not enough to be like a live body in a number. The thing I... You go up on that first. The thing I took from your discussion there of the Irish wingers, and then you sort of address it, is that how each of them is a different kind of weapon. They're like, they're, he's not going for a type of winger. He's going for whatever, the best quality winger, and then he'll get them involved in whatever way he can to fit their ability. So low, it's not just that he, he is the main uh, exit option for kicking. He's not just, oh, a left footer. He's like, he's our big kicker, and they'll go to him really, really frequently. He's very happy to take it on, take on that responsibility all the time. And it's not like he, he looks for that in every winger. He, he he just oh correct yeah he's like he'll pick Balakoon and Larmer who have very different uh, styles to yeah to learn. now you can like you can draw some similarities between players like Earls and Conway are sort of similar uh, and then Balakoon and, and Stockdale are sort of similar and it's not just because they play for the same province it's like build height Larmer's not similar to anybody like if you can draw a parallel with Hansen but Hansen's much more of a footballer and then Larmer's much more of a jinker uh but you're right. Like there's there's a wide uh, disparity between the type, and there's no one like Low in Ireland. There's but there is a wide disparity between the types of wingers he uses, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how how you know who's available, who's fit, and who plays. Stockdale's the closest to Low, I think. I think Stock Stockdale's played fullback. He's he's got a decent kicking game. Um, he's big. You can bring him in at first receiver. He doesn't have Low's offloading ability. But like he'll he'll try to do it because he's yeah. so confident in. You'd hope he's so confident. He he hasn't had, he hasn't had a good run of eighteen months. I don't think. Um, but I mean, he's 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 a shark of try scorer. Oh he's yeah, the sort but that's of guy that you know you could if he gets a few scores, he could get that confidence back. His tries, though, if you look back at his some of his tries for Ireland, have been amazing. But a lot of them are like clean line break and running away from everyone which is much more like a Balakum sort of try than a James mm. Lowe try. Mm. And where does Calvin Nash fit into that picture then as the surprise? I don't selection? know. Good question. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm surprised. I, he's never a guy I saw as an international class wing. So I, I, I guess he toured very well and... He must have trained very well and they must really like him in the panel. But given all the names that we've gone through, I he might get capped. He might he might get on the pitch against Fiji. But like Farrell doesn't give away caps. I struggle to see him going to the World Cup. Yeah. Given, given all the names we've just run through and given that there's 33 players gone. Oh yeah, like, like, like we've named seven players. He'd be he'd be eighth on the list. Now I remember him as an under twenty. He was uh, under twenty the same year as Larmer, and he was really really good under twenty. But the difference between the amount of games they've played in, in the intervening years at the same age is like Larmer's played about one hundred and thirty games, including maybe even more, like including thirty games for Ireland. And Nash has played about fifty. Yeah, that's because Munster have had good wings, but sure, Leinster have had good wings as well. Um, so I. I think he has potential. It's a good question. Who's he like? He's 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 not like any of them because it's he hasn't had a, a period where he's excelled. Like he hasn't he hasn't identified 
Like I think he's, I think he's quite a, a good winger. But like other those other guys have had periods where they've really excelled and been great. And you go, that's what that's what Conway's like when he's at his best. You know, great kicks in behind, great work rate, really good in the air, really busy. Perl's unbelievable finisher. Um, but like we yeah, don't know what Nash is like. And then just lastly on the state of that squad. State of any like Ryan Baird is picked as a six again. Do you think his second row career is over? Yeah. Simple as that. <laughs> and um Stuart McCluskey is leap leap leapt frogged. Leap leapfrogged. Stuart McCluskey has leapfrogged. Leapt frogged. Uh but in particular because he plays, I guess, twelve uh, more so than Hume plays thirteen specifically. Um, do you think that would have happened? Do you think he would have got in ahead of Bundy anyway? No, no. no but I'm, I'm. Uh, it's it's been Ireland's deepest position. Like Stuart McCluskey, when people say, "Oh, how come he doesn't have more caps?" and the answer is because of Bundy and Robbie Henshaw. But in another era, he could have been Ireland's first choice twelve. I'm a big McCluskey fan. I think he makes the players outside him look really good. For example, like Luke Marshall is a good player, but now like Paris amongst other people saying Luke Marshall should be in the squad and you're going, everyone who plays outside Stuart McCluskey looks good. Stuart McCluskey and, and most uh, most of the people who play inside him, he makes look good or makes look better. Like it's not like they're starting from nothing. McCluskey is a really, really good player. You know, he's always been, had a great offloading ability. Uh, he's a huge dude. And then, you know, one of the, the thing which I thought was great because a lot of people saw it was that beautiful skipped flat pass against the Mary in the second Mary game. You're going, guy is, that has been there, you know, for quite a while. He's a player who's improved his passing dramatically since the very start of his career, which is, you know, eight years ago to the stage where he is now. So I'm very happy to see him in. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Some of the fans not happy with that. So the Premiership is going through clubs like the UK is going through Prime Ministers? No, that's not a good start. That is a good start. That's exactly what's happened. They've lost two this year. Yeah. Does it end here, though, is what we're all asking. Who will be the Christmas Prime Minister? Bring back Boris by the look of things. <laughs> that's what's fucking open like. But anyway, is there another club to, like, to, to fold? You know, rumours galore. Is it going to be London Irish? Is it going to be Newcastle? How many... How many do they need to get rid of to get to their dream 10-team premiership? Well, One ter- more. Yeah. They started with 13 this season. Lucky. And, yeah, auspicious. Um, and, obviously, Worcester and Wasps have gone. So, like, Wasps... Wasps really seem to be a shock. And there's a lot of things happening to England. Like, that. that sort of... There's a real sense of exceptionalism around England uh, and England in particular since Brexit. And do you think that like, oh, Brexit's Brexit's so big that it's kind of hard to get past it that anything is happening now isn't in some way affected by Brexit. But it's also very difficult to say what exactly that is. Personally speaking, I was going, is, is the UK's creditworthiness a question compared to where it's been for 300 years? You know, like where they were able to issue debt and they get favorable rates and basically they could borrow. And like how much of 
today's spending did they bring forward to yesterday? So I, I think there must be, <clears throat> excuse me, so many fissures and so many stress lines in, in the British economy that previously, you know, somebody would have stepped in and bailed them out or somebody would have taken the opportunity now that those, uh, that free cash isn't floating around or, or people are warier about it or just like the whole, like, I mean, basically the whole mood music has changed that two clubs in the space of a month have gone. Like they've, like Wasps, 167 people made redundant from it. And like both those teams have been have been relegated. So in, in a way, it's almost reassuring to see that they've been relegated, that England still does some of the things that it, like it still holds the rules. It Like it, it still has some sort of standards that it goes, well, this is the way we said we were going to govern our game. This is what's happened. This is we are going to, we're going to, we're going to hold to it rather than just try to think up of, of some more exceptions. Like at the same stage, this is very serious stuff. I mean, the, the thing that hit me was reading interviews with players, be they recently retired, relatively recently retired in Lawrence Delalio or Jamie George, who's a senior player. Um, it's just like how, how shocked they are by it, how, and how much they love their club. Like, Lawrence Delalio said, like, there's a lot of pain inside my heart, which is quite a poetic way of, of saying it. But, like, it seemed very genuine. Like, it, it very, very heartfelt. Putting the blame game to one side, why Wasps are here and who's responsible for that, from an emotional level, it is painful. It's heartbreaking, really. I was at the club for 18 years, and it's more than a rugby club for me. It arrived in my life and it completely transformed my life. I think I speak on behalf of all Wasps fans. It's a dark few weeks and there's a lot of pain and sorrow and emotion and I'm grieving right now. I don't think it reflects well on anyone, on Wasps, on rugby in general, the state of English rugby at the minute. I mean, like, that is raw mm. and that's real. And, like, when England won the World Cup in 2003, they all came back as they were all massively humbled. And you... You just knew that, like, Clive Woodward had said, this is the message, like, <laughs> however we feel. And we kind of... And maybe he just decided, like, this is the way we're going to portray ourselves. We say it often or not, often enough, like, this is the way we'll come across. Those are, oh, we're massively humbled. But you're kind of going, yeah, you don't look massively humble. But it's nice to hear you say it because you'd be unbearable otherwise. But it's actually quite nice, quite pleasing scene, like... Uh, a happy squad of decent blokes win the World Cup and have not been in the Southern Hemisphere. So, like, I personally, I enjoyed England winning it in 20 years ago. But that's that's real. That is that is raw and it is real and it is heartfelt. And you go, wow. Now, like, Jamie George has given the usual, well, I think the players should be involved. And I can read that one out as well. But, like, I mean... Read it out. Just see what he says. I, I just so, so we're not totally... I understand the value in potentially compressing the league. Less games, make the games bigger, allow for the internationals to play more for their clubs. These types of conversations need to happen. Whether they can work logistically is for the RFU and the PRL to decide. But players need to be at the forefront of these conversations. I see the positives and the negatives. Fundamentally, my priority is playing for Saracens. They are the club that I love. If I, if I then get picked for England off the back of it, that's fantastic. I wouldn't want a central contract to take away from the importance of the club game. If it can enhance it in some way, then absolutely, that's a conversation to be had. But it shouldn't be about just taking the England players out of the club game. Uh, I speak on behalf of a lot of players. Ah, shit, I've lost my page there. Sorry. I speak on behalf of a lot of players. Start that sentence again when you when you find it. 
I speak on behalf of a lot of players in that we want to play for our clubs. That's why players need a voice in this conversation. It would be very easy to look at this commercially and say, well, let's just make England as big as we can and take away from the club game. For me, that isn't the answer, and that's not what players want. And I look at that one and I go, I don't... There's, there's a few things missing here, Jamie. How, how much do you want to play for Saracens? As in, how much do you want to play for Saracens? Oh, so, the fingers thing means the money. The fingers thing means the money. Like, are, are you prepared to take a pay cut of 50%? Yeah. Like, if, if that's what that means. Like, if because you're looking at it going, but you're like, the salaries the players are on must be the main cost for these clubs. Like, it's it's un, it's untenable. If it's untenable to play, and then he's, he's sort of alluding that, like, how many matches are England going to play? Yeah? Like, what does he think is going to happen here? So this kind of, the players should be at the forefront. The players are transitory. Like, Lawrence Saladio was a player 20 years ago, right? So do... And I, I've been hearing this stuff for longer. Oh, well, the players need to say, rugby career is short. And I I think that Delalio's, Delalio's love for the game, Delalio's love for Wasps, I think is, strikes me as more heartfelt because he realised that the role that it played in his life, he realised like his, his career is behind him. And you're sort of going, the players should be at the forefront. But if the players are at the forefront, somebody else has to take a step back. I would rather Lawrence Delalio, at his stage of life, with his experience, be the one to make that decision because he's wiser. He's seen more. He's he's seen the ups and the downs. He realizes that the role that wasps have to play. Whereas for the players, you go, mate, for you, it's a pay cut. Yeah, like, that's the answer. And it's the, all of these players, the reason, all of, sorry, all of these clubs, the reason that they're not in businesses. Like to make that they're not making money in their business is because their salary costs to their players and their coaches are too much. Their but, players, no, their players are paid too much for the money that comes in. So the yes. business doesn't work. Okay. And uh, I don't know why I said okay at that, but um, that's a huge, that is the biggest factor in it all. They need a major reset in terms of how much English players are played by their clubs. And it could come down. It should really be about, like, you should be able to make a profit from a business. It doesn't have to be a massive profit. But if you're spending 70% of your income or 78% of your income on player salaries, and this is player salaries, playing squad, never mind your medical team, your um, all the people who have to work in the office to make sure that there's tickets sold, that there's somebody to open the fucking gates, that there's somebody to clean up after them. They all have to be paid as well. They're all part of the club. They're not getting paid the same uh, massive salaries as the players are playing. Like this is, it's like when when Mark Evans was talking to Jim Hamilton on Jim Hamilton's podcast, which was really exceptional. Uh, I think I retreated it previously. Mark Evans, who's previously been involved in administration of Saracens, Harlequins, Melbourne Storm and the NRL. He spoke about how the NRL functions. And he was saying that there should be a lowest salary cap. There should be a salary cap that caps the least you can pay a player. But he was suggesting, well, off the top of my head, it could be 40,000. And Jim Hammond was like astounded. Like, oh, Jim Hammond's a very good guy, but he could, he, you could say, like, he was saying, oh, that's almost offensive. You know, players should, are worth so much more than that. It's such a hard sport. And you're going, yeah, but nobody fucking goes to watch it. That's all the money that comes in. You're saying you should be paid more money than your company earns because some rich lad has decided basically as a favor. 
to you and as an ego trip for him that he can pay you 200 grand. Of course your fucking, of course your league's going to break. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's the reality of professional sports. So I, I, I wanted to sort of interject there when you're talking because if the clubs were bringing in the revenues, like look, business, you've got revenues, you've got costs. They haven't been able to manage either, but I mean, you've got much more opportunity of managing your costs because the revenue is up to the paying punter. Now, the way, there's nothing new in what we're going to say. I just think it has to be re-emphasized. Like rugby, there really is an opportunity for a reset here for rugby, but rugby has to make a decision about, like in a fragmented broadcasting environment, like how, what thematically do they try to do? Um, I give away my sort of my age and my my sort of biases here, but certainly being on domestic TV is good because, but there's like there's knock on effects. If you're on domestic TV, like your your broadcast quality is better. People still watch TV and they will always watch TV. They might they just don't watch it in the same way as when they used to have four channels or six channels. But it means that you bring the sport to more people. Now, the knock-on effect of that is you need to make the ticket prices cheaper. You can't have a sport that's accessible to loads of people and then charge them minimum of 50 quid for a game because you're going, well, I can't bring my three kids to this match because it's going to cost me 200 quid for their tickets. Never mind getting there, parking, buying all the crap for them, getting a jersey, hot chocolate, bag of crisps, bag of this, fizzy pop, yada, yada, blah, blah. 18 points. 18 points, you know, whatever age these three children are. Um, sure are thirsty. <laughs> you no, know, like you, you, you've, you've got to bring them and go, well, I can, I can go to this for 10, kid, 10 quid for the three kids, but 10 quid each for the three kids and like 25 quid for me. And then I'll pay the market price for all the crap that I buy when I'm there. But like, I'm grand. I'm happy with that, you know? And by then, you've got a full stadium and you've got a better product. But, like, saying sort of, oh, you know, like, stadium attendances are still down, you go, it's because the tickets are too expensive. And, again, I go back to terracing. Like, if, if you make certain parts of the ground more accessible to people who want to pay less for it and don't mind about the, the relative lack of comfort, more people will go to your matches. Correct. And, like, rugby really has to understand this and like I can't believe that it doesn't and th this is the sort of the the unfortunate thing is like this is the delusion to to think otherwise secondary thing to being on terrestrial television is the more people who see you as a team the more individual players get known so if you're playing away on BT Sport or a mix between BT Sport and Sky Sport Everyone who pays to see you pretty much already knows you. If you're playing on BBC, Channel 4 or ITV, you're being introduced to new people time and time again. So if players want to grow their brand, right, they can either, you know, of course they can do that on, on TikTok or Instagram, Twitter, whatever. But a more effective way would be playing in front of the millions and millions of people who watch terrestrial TV and see, oh, there's Marcus Smith, there's Marwa Toje, there's Jamie George, etc. So more, many more people see him, and as a result, he gets more sponsors opportunities outside rugby. That's how this works. How it works in all of the sports markets. And I, I know the sort of the the technology is there to allow streaming, so that if, for example, you wanted to watch all of Leinster's games, 
you could pay a subscription fee to Leinster and you would get a scream, a sc- you know, like a a stream on your phone. But then you kind of go, okay. That's the same how, market as people paying for BT or Sky Sports. How much of that is, but say you could be guaranteed, but how, how much of sports watching is a communal event? Like how much of it is just, uh, I'm going to sit on my own with my phone and watch this match. I will certainly do that for the Irish matches. Do you want to still do it for Leinster matches when I see, oh, like I need to pay like three quid to watch this match. And I go, well, I want to watch it because it's on Friday night, Claire's out. I'm minding the kids. Like I'm minding the kids. Like they're asleep upstairs. You know, You're I'm in the house. Yeah. I'm still minding them. Still minding them. Um, and I'm going to watch this match for three quid. But really, that's like sports watching is a communal event. And I, I, I particularly love this. I must have read this like 20, 25 years ago about um, when TV was first introduced in Mexico or when it first sort of expanded to the, to the masses. Not everybody had it. Um, and what they do in Mexico was they turn the t- they put the they turn the t- they put the TV in excuse me in the window and then turn it so it looked outside. And then they'd cook for each other and they'd watch it and they'd put up benches and chairs and watch it from the street. And it was a communal event. And you sort of go, like that really stands out in people's memories. That's really fun. Now, like you have to sort of say, do they still do that? They no. still do that in Berlin in the Spatie, which are like the bottle shops, the off-licenses. Okay. You put a TV in the window and you put your chairs out on the street because the paths are really wide in Berlin and you all watch the football matches together. Oh, that is quality. Won't work this World Cup because it's on the middle of fucking winter, of course. Now, you have to sort of say, like, well, do they keep on doing that in Mexico? No, they didn't. Like, when TVs got cheaper and people got relatively richer, they all bought their own TVs and they watched it in the house. But, like, everybody was watching the same stuff. That's That's what people remember. So... If you bring that commercial experience, so a few weeks ago we were talking about what does rugby do well? It puts on big events well. It sort of pitches goodies against baddies. And again, going back to stuff that Doubt, as you talked about before, referenced before, listening to somebody being interviewed on one of the Saturday talk, you know, shows and RTE radio about her memory of uh, January and February. And she goes, like, my father used to be excited. Like, that, that, that's when daddy was... You know, he'd be bouncing in the morning time. Like other than that, he was, he was working. He was, you know, he was he was tired. He was worried. He was kind of he was, you know, or he was going about his business. Like you know, he wasn't depressed or anything. You know, like so. But he was he was bouncing on those mornings because the Six Nations was on, and she or the Five Nations, as you know, back then, and she associated with that. And you sort of go like, that's like that's the attraction of the sport. So. This is this is what you're selling if you're selling the game. And like we we were all in Japan. Hugo and I went together, obviously, in you and subsequent to us. And it was brilliant. And it was in a new market and it was exciting. And there's going to be a World Cup on in France. And that should be really good because it's all going to be in one country. And France is a great country. Japan's a great country. Like these are really good events to go to. So like rugby has a really good product, but like, it really needs to figure out what it's doing. So it's not just about, oh, it has to be on domestic TV. It can be on a satellite broadcaster, but you you need to play to that satellite broadcaster's strengths. Like, being on multiple, like, being on multiple channels all over the place is no use to anybody. Like, games being on Amazon, you don't even know they're on. Mm. 
or like I don't even have Amazon or like I do have Amazon but I didn't even realize I had it like how the hell do I have Amazon oh I inadvertently clicked on a prime button on some email like three years ago and they're taking a tenner out of my bank account uh, every month and like stuff gets delivered to me quicker I mean I can watch the rugby on it it's like who fucking knows like no one watches that shit and like the production is crap the picture quality is good the stuff is on but like it's on this is the fourth channel that matches are on after terrestrial sky and bt and you're just there going like sure who knows like that that's no way to it's no way to grow your brand it's just this random stuff littered all over the place and like that to me is like just the clubs have been the first ones because they have these delusions about themselves they haven't managed to cover their costs they haven't managed to grow their revenues They've marketed themselves um, in this sort of deluded belief that they are what people want to watch. People want to watch the game. They associate the game with international rugby. They like the players. Like it, it's a decent product. There's as you see, as you can hear from from Jamie George and Lawrence Lally, like people like their clubs. People love their clubs. Like that that locality. But. Um, like you, you, you need to cater for that. Like you need to make it accessible for people to go, which means the tickets have might have to be cheap. And you know, ideally, if they're cheap, you will get more people. Like if they're cheap, you will get more people going. So You've got that's to make it, that's your generating of yeah. the revenue, and then you just have to cut your cloth to suit your means. And you go back to the forty k, and you go, look, this is this is the market that you operate in. Yeah, you chose to become a rugby player, man. Yeah. You know, you can go and do something else anytime you want. Oh, I still want to be a rugby player. Yeah, do you still want to be doing it if you're paying, getting paid 50% of what you were? Because my company that pays you doesn't have that money. I have a question to, to wrap this up. Do you think there's any significance in the fact that the club who has been the most successful in England for the last decade uh, and had lots of success in Europe and has provided many of the, the main characters, maybe you might even say the backbone of the English team, Saracens, has, were re, uh, relegated through points deductions for paying their players too much. And then the, yeah. the, 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 the ensuing problem with, is it keeping up with the Joneses or were, does the salary cap not work at all or what? Yeah, it's completely emblematic of the problem. It's all of the premiership owners that have an exceptionalism, egotism problem. And they think where they're normally trying to organize the business where they, where they run it themselves while constantly being at loggerheads with one, one another. They don't know how to run the premiership as a business. Like you can say there's difficulties in running their clubs as a business. They don't know how to run that as a business. Now they're going to call in the RFU and PRL are going to sit down and appoint a commissioner like all the American sports did about 100 fucking years ago, which they were too egotistical and too exceptionist to do at the beginning. They had to do it better. They weren't prepared to have anyone lord it over with them. They weren't actually prepared to have a proper league run by anybody but themselves. They all had to run it themselves. They had to do it under a certain economic system, which they tried to cheat all the time, you know? And then they weren't prepared to restrict their influence to that competition. Then they said, oh, Europe is broken. Like this is, there are so many parallels with Brexit that you can't avoid it. They said, Europe is broken. We can do it better on our own, right? So they go in, they break the European competition that wins. Then they get control of their own destiny. And what happens? They tank their fucking league. 
Like, this is exactly what has happened with Brexit. It's to do with so many, this huge Tory bias in rugby in England. You know, that has to be, you have to work together. You have to be able to compromise. You have to have goodwill towards one another and respect each other's opinions. And you also just have to be able to do business in a pragmatic manner and make concessions to one another. This is all happening now. It's beginning to happen now. After the fucking two clubs who have massive histories have gone kaput. Like, and they're, oh, now we can, now we've recognised our mistakes. For fuck's sake, for about five minutes until Boris Johnson's prime minister again. Yeah, and you remember, like, England have had a if not thriving, existing professional rugby environment for over 100 years. It's called Rugby League, and it's up in the north, where it doesn't have that Tory exceptionalism to it, really. It just, I guess, it has that. And look, I don't want to get all working class hero about it, but there, like, there was a blueprint for how to run a professional rugby environment in England because it's been done for 100 years. So I, I think really the... The big thing for me about what you just said there is this is all self-inflicted. Like the Premiership Club set up a company, they put 13, like they, they, they said, oh, well, you know, the great thing about our league is that there's relegation. That's what makes it so competitive. And then they said, well, we have 13 teams in our company, so we're going to have 13 teams in our league, which, and we're going to have no relegation. And you're going, so which is it? And then they they didn't want they were always at loggerheads with their union, and now it's and then they had somebody breaching the salary cap, they they punished them for a bit, but like they just didn't have any conviction in it, and now the thing is gone to shit, and you're just looking at it gone. This is this is all self inflicted. This is like, your like, this own is, fault. This is the problem here with it. Like this this is this is why in an eminently sympathetic environment it, it's quite difficult to have sympathy with the clubs like you feel very sorry for the people that worked in those companies and the bonds that they would have built up and the fans and the fans and like the, the friendships and all that, that that human element like you you like that that bit's awful but for for, for the likes of Mark McCafferty and these guys who Kept just on telling just had other this people. penal self-interest yeah. and were, were arrogant about it and like we're all the worst bits of Englishness. Um, you just see it blown up in their face and you're just like, oh, good Lord. Like, and kept on saying that their way was the only their, way. Their way is this, is, this is the right way to do things. Sure, they're not even a club. They're, we they're have a province. The province. Sure. You know, there's like, we could see that England have a club team. We don't demand that the English uh, clubs amalgamate into counties or into regions. You say, oh, you, you could do that. And they're going, no, this is the only way it can be. It has to be club. And you're going, it doesn't. Just, just fucking listen to other people's ideas. You know, so it's, it's no, very sad. It is sad. But it's sad. also, also like, yeah, I, I completely am experiencing schadenfreude. Like a pleasure in other people's downfall. And again, I stress, not in anybody who's been working for Wasps or Worcester or who are good fans of those clubs. But all the blowhards. Fuck yeah. Mm. So it's very real. Like it's it's it like it's it's huge. I mean this is this is the biggest thing 
I can remember in English rugby since professionalism. Exactly. Since it's the biggest thing since professionalism. Yeah. yeah. And it's the collapse of professionalism. Do you, do you think it's the collapse of professionalism? No, that was just a good way to end it, though. Yeah, it was <laughs> <laughs> You can just cut it at the end.